take your Bibles and open to 1 Corinthians 15, or if you've not used the church app yet for your sermon notes, I think you'll find you really enjoy them. There's a number of different ways that you can take notes on there. Then you can email it to yourself for later. And uh, we've, uh, of course, are continuing in this series that is going to take us all the way up to Easter. If you look at the last part of the the, uh, confession, it just works perfect uh, as far as ending on Easter. But we've moved from the part of the confession that is focused on the Father to the part that focuses on Jesus Christ. And last week, we, we looked at the, uh, the part of the confession where he, was, uh, where he was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was dead and buried. The continuation of that today of the confession is simply this. I believe Jesus, that's always I put in parentheses because that's the part we're on, on the third day rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is a portion of Scripture that Paul takes a significant amount of time to talk about because uh, or this confession really Paul talks about a lot in 1 Corinthians 15 about resurrection because resurrection is the the big part of Christianity, a gentleman that I have been sharing the faith with over a number of years, uh, one of the first things that he said to me is he just said, hey, the resurrection's a pretty big deal. And I'm here to tell you the resurrection's a pretty big deal. Uh, and, and, it, and, and oftentimes we don't think about that because modern day Christianity has lost the power of the resurrection because of this, uh, this idea, well, I'm just going to die and go to heaven. Well, that kind of takes away the power of the resurrection. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is we're going to, um, at some point, rise to a better life, Paul says, uh, to a, with a body that is incorruptible. And so every time you have a creak, every time you have a pain, every time you have an issue, know that a better body's coming. That's a good thing. But I want to read a good part of uh, chapter 15, but only parts of it, even though it's still going to be a significant part. I want to start reading in verse 12 and read through 20, and then we're going to jump down to verse 24. Starting in verse 12, though, he says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found preaching in vain or excuse me, we are, found, we are even found to mis, be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Now, he's, he's using a big part of the, the negative example in all of this, and it's important that you understand how he's writing here. He goes on and says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those... Also, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, or excuse me, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Verse 24, he says, Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Listen to this next sentence. 
the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's in here he's, he's beginning to open to us up to a, a whole thought process that is very normal for Paul. It's very normal in all of his writings that in our belief there is a now and there's a not yet. Death is destroyed and death will be destroyed. Now, sometimes that's hard for us to get our mind around, but we're going to explore that a little bit more. Then jumping down a few more verses, he says, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Let me say that again. The sting of death is sin. Say those words with me. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. That's what we looked at last week. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he finishes out the chapter with these words. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I'd like you to read that aloud with me another time. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Got a picture up here of a gentleman by the name of Ignatius of Antioch. He was, he was a disciple of John. Now, the disciple John, not John the Baptist, the disciple John, the John that wrote the book of John, the John that wrote the first, second, and third John, and the John that wrote the book of Revelation. He spent his time imparting the Christ that he received into the life of Ignatius. That's what discipleship does. It imparts the life that is in us of Christ. It imparts it into someone else in our life. Ignatius' life... Uh, was uh, very interesting as he spent much of his life after uh, confessing the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior uh, in really uh, avoiding the same persecution that uh, John and much of the church was experiencing. Uh, he grew in, um, in, his, uh, in his spiritual influence and was known as the bishop over the uh, Christians of Antioch. And over a period of time, he actually was arrested. He was arrested while the emperor, um, Trojan, was uh, the emperor. And in the year 107, he was brought before uh, the emperor. And as he was brought before the emperor, em emperor, he looked at him and he said, I do not see a Theophorus on my list. Now, actually, if his name is Ignatius uh, Theophilus. And, uh, and yet his response, which is recorded to um, the emperor of that day, was simply this. He said, be whoever you want it to be. Um, uh, he says, but I am in my, have in my breast the Lord Jesus Christ. And he looked at it as an opportunity to share with the emperor who Jesus Christ was in his life. And so as he did this, the emperor responded, but a, 
I have a question for you. Do I, your emperor, not seem to you to have the gods in my mind too? The very gods whose assistance we enjoy in fighting against our enemies like the Dacians. But here's how Ignatius responded. He didn't respond with uh, so much of our American gospel that says, you got to understand that Jesus loves you. This is how he responds. You are an error, emperor, when you call the demons of your nation gods. For there is but one God who made heaven, earth, the sea, and all that are in them, and one Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. To which the emperor, and I'm just giving a little highlights of the, the recorded story, but the emperor responded ultimately this way. He pronounced a sentence that followed over Ignatius' life. We command that Ignatius, who affirms that he carries about within him that which was crucified, be bound by soldiers and carried to the great day, Rome, there to be devoured by the beasts for the gratification of the people. In fact, uh, one of the known paintings of him um, has him, uh, if you want to bring that next one up, uh, has him uh, really before the, uh, before the lions. In fact, it's, uh, it's said that the Christians, uh, after he was, he was ripped and torn apart by the lions in front of, they say, roughly 86,000 Romans, that the Christians took and buried what they said were his marred bones. But he did not shrink from his confession. He, he knew without a doubt who lived inside of his breast. He declared in absolute clarity the supremacy of Jesus Christ, even to the emperor who would have him killed. In fact, you can say he did not love his life even to death because he was aligned with the victory of Jesus Christ. Now, I say all this because I want to read from what uh, he kind of wrote. He wrote uh, uh, an epistle to the Ephesians. It's not in the Bible, but it was a letter that he wrote as a discipling mechanism to help take the life that was in him and see it developed in the people that were around him. And this is what he wrote. He said, let us consider, beloved, how the Lord continually provides us that there shall be a future resurrection of which he has rendered the Lord Jesus Christ the first fruits by raising him from the dead. Let us contemplate, beloved, the resurrection which is at all times taking place. Day and night declare to us a resurrection. The night sinks to sleep, and the day rises, and the day again departs, and the night comes on. Let us behold the fruits of the earth, how the sowing of grain takes place. The sower goes forth and casts it into the ground, and the seed being thus scattered, though dry and naked when it fell upon the earth, is gradually dissolved. 
Then out of the delusion, the mighty power of the providence of the Lord raises it up again. And from one seed, many arise and bring forth fruit. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to consider the resurrection. I want us to stop and think about all of the implications and all the power associated with the reality of Jesus Christ having been raised from the dead. We'll start with, you know, what he did for us, because there, I had you repeat, uh, the sin is this, uh, death is the sting of sin. Because I think sometimes we don't really make the correlation between sin and death. Sin is simply doing what we wanted to do, regardless of what or how God felt about it. Death is how we paid for it. You might think of it a little bit this way. Uh, sin is the bridge. Death is the toll that we pay to go on that bridge. Now, the wage, we know, the, we, we know that the wage of sin is death. But what we oftentimes don't think about is that when Adam and Eve sinned, death immediately took place, and then death would take place. And in each of our lives, death took place, and then death will take place. Remember, I said I'm going to keep coming back to that, the now and the not yet. The very first thing that we have to understand about death is that death is, is not a, a cease to exist. That's not death. That people who think that they're just going to go in the grave and cease to exist are going to have a rude awakening in the most literal sense. We were made to live forever, but because of sin, we have to pay through a physical death. But even before that, what took place was a separation between life itself and us. Who is life? God is life. And there was that separation. And death entered or death happened in our soul, in our spirit, however you want to put it, wherever you want to place that, inside of us, death happened. In fact, if there's ever a, a, a greater illustration of people who are, who are walking around dead, it's not the, the show Walking Dead, but it's people who don't know Jesus. They're walking around, but they're dead on the inside. That could be you, that you're walking around and you're dead on the inside. Why? Because the first death, the first sting of death comes from inside of us dying. One of the things that I love to do is look into the eyes of a newborn. Now, the reason I like looking in the eyes of a newborn isn't because it doesn't make me look at their squished up face. Okay, I know some of you, I just offend every time I say that, but they just look like little Winston Churchills. But their eyes are full of life. There's a beautiful beauty of life in there because that child has yet to sin. That child has yet to go his or her own way. But the moment that takes place, that life that is inside, it goes away. It dies. Now they're separated from God. But then we also know that there is another death that is yet coming, and it's the death with our physical bodies. Do you realize that when we die, there's another separation that happens? 
Our soul and spirit are separated from our physical bodies. And if you, if you already have the life of Christ in you, you already experience that, then your life, is that life is going to go to paradise. It's going to go to heaven. It's going to go to the place that, that God and Jesus now reside. It separates. In fact, the, the Hebrews, they didn't believe as the Greeks. And, and I'll mess with some of your theology because the Hebrews didn't believe in, a, in us being what's called a trichotomy, a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. You've heard that time and time again. In fact, you find that in the New Testament because the New Testament is written through a Greek lens. But in the Old Testament, they believed in a dichotomy. You were just you and a spirit that God went and breathed life in you. And when you die, that life leaves. And, and that's where we actually get the, the, the statement, the person has expired. It's that belief that that life leaves, which is so important with the resurrection because the, that where there was a separation, the resurrection brings them back together. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is actually, he's, he's, he's making uh, a correction so that there can ultimately be the connection. And so what Jesus does, and this is where the resurrection becomes profoundly important, because Jesus, he paid the price on the cross, and he proved that he had the goods at the resurrection. Because, how do you prove that? Well, because he can, now this creed doesn't bring it out, but scripture brings it out, is that he descends down to, to, to hell in the grave, and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And so he's, he's on the cross, and he says, it is finished. Well, they didn't understand what he was saying, that, that, that statement is simply that he was making, is that there's like putting a stamp that it has been paid completely. He's the one that ultimately pays the sting that comes from our sin. How do I know that? Because he's alive. He's not in the grave. And because he's not in the grave, I know that he has paid for that. You and I do not have the spiritual capital to pay for that on our own. And that what, that, what does that mean to us? It means that I don't care how good you are. I don't care how much good you do. I don't care how much good you pay for. You do not have the spiritual capital to take away the sting that comes from sin. But Jesus did. And so he says, it's done. Now, if, if you're not living a life that, that lives a life going, Jesus, this is, this is what you have done for me. You've taken away that sting. If you're still living with the sting, that, that, that constant nagging feeling like there's doom impending because of your life, then it's the same thing like if people who will go and take a credit card and they pay a medical bill thinking their medical bill's paid. They still got the credit card bill. It hasn't been transferred. But once you say, I have faith that Jesus took the sting, when the bill comes, there's nothing on the bill. It's zero. You owe nothing. Oh, please get that. You owe nothing. Because he's the one that took care of it. The uh, beautiful thing about... Uh, about Jesus is that he actually makes sure that while 
there's separation, we come back together. Now, in this portion of Scripture, if you're reading it, you have to understand that when it talks about, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? That is not sung until at least 1,007 years from now. Because when Jesus comes back, we're raised from the dead. We have resurrected bodies. But he's going to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. And as he rules and reigns on a thousand years, for a thousand years, and we rule with him, there are going to be people that decide, you know what? I want to, I want to see what the taste of uh, what, what sin's really like, and I'm going to step out. And Jesus is going to rule with an iron scepter, and poof, they're dead. There's no trial. There's no appeals of court. It's just he rules with an iron scepter, and boom, they're done. So people will die, not us, because we'll be raised to everlasting life. Say those words, raised to everlasting life. It's a confusion with people. They think we got more things to worry about. I had none to worry about during that time. We, we will have no desire to go across the bridge of sin whatsoever. But we'll get to enjoy the life that he has promised. But at the end, when all of the people of all of history who never put their faith in Jesus Christ, who never put their faith in the God of heaven, are raised again, Bible says they're going to have another separation. They're going to get to go right in front of God. And they're going to get cast, to, cast out to everlasting destruction, everlasting fire. But Jesus, he goes down and he takes the key of death and grave. And he said, I'm going to go to hell so you guys don't have to, but hell can't hold me there. So what does he do? He ascends. He descends, but he ascends to the highest place. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. In fact, what you find before he ever, ever gets to the right hand of the Father, you find this very interesting portion of Scripture where he shows up to Mary. And he says to Mary, he said, you can't cling to me. Because all of a sudden, she had the recognition that Jesus, everything that he said was true, and, and uh, he was exactly who he said. So she clung to him. He said, you can't do that because I still have to ascend to the Father. He didn't, he didn't want Mary holding him back. Simply, it's the simplest way to look at that, at that encounter. But why did he do that then? Because he wanted to quickly get the word spread on the earth that he had been raised from the dead. And so he proves that he's alive. And now people are going, wait a minute. So certainly then he is the son of God. So if he's the son of God, then he is truth. Certainly he paid for our sins. So I know that I have forgiveness. Now I know Satan is defeated, so I can live in freedom. Death is destroyed, so now I can live with hope. But for Jesus, he wanted, I'm sure, to have the fulfillment of his prayer, his desire that he prayed that was recorded in John chapter 17. He said, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. What does that mean for you and I? It means that ultimately Jesus has been raised to the highest place that can be raised. Now the one that we follow, the one that we serve, he's the one that I already bow my knee to. He's the one that I already confess to. And while every person will eventually swear allegiance to him, I've already done that. And so now I go, okay, but he comes and he does something in us. The resurrection does something profound in every one of us if we'll stop and we'll consider. The first is simply a very genuine faith. Why is that? Is it because you've conjured it up enough? Is it because you've read enough scripture? No. 
It's because he has come and is inside each and every one of us. Now there's not a separation between us and the almighty God. He's overcome the death of our hearts. He's overcome the death that resulted in our decision. And he's given us the fullness of himself. And now we have this fellowship. And so what happens is, as Paul talks about another place, is the veil's taken away from our eyes and we see things differently. In fact, C.S. Lewis said this about Christianity. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sunrise, not only because I see it, but because I see everything else. And that's what happens when you understand that the, the Christ is now living in you. You see things profoundly different. And so Paul, in his writings, he gives that, that whole negative thing. He says, so if, if, it's, if it's not true, then we're all still in our sins. If it's not true, he's a liar and we're liars. If it's not true, my preaching is a waste of time. If it's not true, then your and I's faith is foolish. He even says, if it's not true, and someone needs to hear this, if the resurrection's not true, then our loved ones, they're gone forever. And so he says, we're to be pitied more than most, than, than everyone. Because we're not living for now. We're living for then. But here's what happens, and this, is, this happens time and time again. The life comes in you, and someone makes an accusation, someone says something, and you can't explain it up here, but you know it in here. You can't explain it up here, but you know it in here. I have uh, two good friends. And one friend that I, they end up being very connected in the story, but the one friend that I have, he was born, uh, and he was born with diabetes, type 1 diabetes. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it, for him, it wasn't the food he ate. It was a matter of his genetics. And over time, uh, it destroyed his kidney. So he was constantly at a young age on dialysis. My other friend felt the Lord speak to him and say, you're to give him one of your kidneys. And so a couple years ago, they went to a hospital in North Dallas and my one friend gave his kidney so the other friend could have one that is functioning. Now, that's not something that you and I would ever be able to see. We only know that, and you only know that because of the story. But for the one friend, he knows without a doubt he has a new kidney. He says to me, when I swing the, I have to learn to swing the golf club in a whole new way. Because as I swing the golf club, now my stomach's not as near as big as it used to be. Because my body's starting to function correctly. And now I have this other space. It caused him, get this, it caused him to live differently because he was now different. The same thing is true with our faith. Christ comes and brings something inside of us being him that changes us completely. And while the only way my friend would ever be able to let people know what happened to him on the inside is if he told the story. The same is true with your story. The same is true with my story. I know what's happened inside of me. 
you can't take that away. You can't try to explain away my experience. Long ago, someone said that you can argue theology. You cannot, ex- you cannot argue experience. And when you know that the life of Christ is in you, now you have a glorious hope. Now you start looking forward. And here's, this is so critical because these, these two are so intertwined. I, I really felt I needed to say it this way. Faith in him equals hope in me. Faith in him, bring that up for me, would you there? Um, that next screen there. Faith in him is hope in me. So you can work that backwards. If you're here today and you're struggling with hope, it goes back to faith in him. The faith in him causes our hope to expand. The resurrection that I look forward to is not a resurrection on my own. It's a resurrection in Christ. He has been raised, so now I have hope that I will be raised. He has come through for, I have hope that he'll now come through me now and later as well. Jesus is the first fruit, so now I have hope because of my faith in him that I'll be counted as fruit as well. I've been given a deposit because of my faith in him, and I'll get the rest later. We are above all else people who have incredible hope. Because we have faith in the one who has already risen in our heart. So what does that mean to us? That's really where we get to the last verse where I had everyone read out loud, where he says, Therefore, my uh, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. I want to just kind of do that a little bit backwards, because uh, he says at the end that knowing that your labor is not in vain. That is a promise. That's a promise that everything that you do in Christ has a promise uh, that starts with eternal life, but continues and grows in what we receive that we get to enjoy throughout all of eternity. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. It changes everything. I was thinking as even I was reading through the portion of scripture that, that for those that don't believe in the resurrection, we're to be pitied more than all. Why? Because we have to work diligently, whether, whether with, the, the, with our hands or through investments to get as much as we can, to hold on to it as long as we can, knowing that we're going to be separated from it. But when there's the resurrection now, we're not investing in the here and now, but we're beginning to invest in the there and then. Now we're going to say, okay, now I have a reason to share the gospel. Now I have a reason to be a dealer of the love that I've received from the Lord. In a world that's so full of hate, the people that follow Jesus should be the most filled with love. Which means that you really can love your enemy. Because the love of Christ is in me. And I believe that he has no problem with my enemy. But there's also a, a purpose because we're always abounding in this work of love. We're always abounding in the work of the Lord. We don't, we don't have to be a people that has to go, boy, I got to get all this done before I die. I have to make sure that I connect with every person before I die. No, now we can be abounding in the work of the Lord because what's going to stop us? Think about the best vacation that you could go on. 
Now, for some, that might be the Caribbean islands. To other, it might be the, you know, might be Alaska. But I can be abounding in the work of the Lord and say no to the things that this world says I have to say yes to because I know that what the Lord has in store for me is going to be way better than a week on a beach uh, in the Caribbean or a week in Alaska. Now, I'm not saying we don't do those things, but when that's our focus, when that's our desire, and we forget, we don't contemplate the power of the resurrection, now I'm looking for yet better things. For those of you that are, are thinking, man, I got to get into a better neighborhood. I need to buy a better house. I need to do this and I need to do that. Let me tell you something. You already got a good house being built for you, one that's better than you could ever get right now. And, and here's the cool thing. It's not dictated by the Federal Reserve's interest rate because it's already been paid for. And this belief ultimately puts us in a position. What's our position? Our position, Paul says, is that we are steadfast. We are loyal to him. We are loyal to the one that took the sting out of death. We are loyal to the one who has taken away the, pay, the payment and the, and the price that is on my head because of sin. I'm loyal to him. That, that, that word um, steadfast also means resolute because the life just in general and people in general will always try to get you off center. They'll always try to get you to think about something different than the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we are steadfast, that means we are resolute. And we're not going to, as he says in another word, he says it's immovable. We're fixed. We're fixed on a belief that Jesus Christ has already overcome death. We're fixed on the reality that while this body is decaying, I have a better one waiting for me. I believe that when I go in the ground, there's going to be a better one that comes up. Now, I'm not afraid of dying. It doesn't mean I want to be thrown into a den of lions. Because that's the manner in which you die. Okay, we can all have different manners in which we, you know, we don't want to, I, I, my preference is just go to sleep and wake up in the presence of the Lord. But if I'm taken before a court and threatened to have lethal injection or to be executed or to be shot because of the resurrection, I will be immovable, inflexible. I will not say no that Jesus Christ is not Lord and Savior. This was a big problem in the early church because while we read about those who said, no, I'm, I'm immovable and I'm fixed and they end up being martyred, there was a whole lot more that said, okay. And then they came back going, well, I want to be forgiven. And they had to deal with, how do you even deal with that? You already rejected Jesus once. But this is the beauty of Christianity. That sin having the sting of death is not up and dictated by you. It's Jesus. And regardless of what you've done, regardless of if you were set free and moved back into being a captive, Jesus Christ has paid the price to set you free. So step into that freedom and live into that freedom. So when you consider, and I want to kind of finish with this and pray, when you consider the magnitude of what he's done. When you clear away anything that clouds the faith, then you can clearly display the life that is Jesus. And it's 
my prayer that that would be the case in every person in this room. And so let's ask the Lord to, uh, let's allow the magnitude of the resurrection to grow in our hearts. Let's ask the Lord to, to clear away anything that clouds our faith in him so we can live with hope. And then ask the Lord to let us clearly display the life that is Jesus. So Father, we thank you for the confession. We thank you for the confession that Jesus Christ did not stay in the grave but that Jesus rose on the third day and he ascended into heaven. And we ask, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, that, Lord, we would really understand the full magnitude of what you have done for us. Lord, may we, as we've considered the resurrection today, I pray that by your spirit, you would allow that to grow. So that, Lord, we might uh, really have what you're doing in us grow and expand. I pray for an increased capacity uh, for each person to have faith in you. Uh, Lord, we say we have faith in you overcoming death, but we don't have faith in you overcoming the problem that's our job. We don't have faith in you to overcome the problem that is our, our marriage. You don't have, we don't have the faith that is in you for the problem that is our children or our parents or our whatever relationships it might be. I pray, Lord, that there would be clarity of our faith in you this morning and a greater capacity to have faith in you in those small moments so that when we reach the large moment before death, that we are confident because we've lived a life that is the life of Jesus, immovable, immeasurable in the goodness that is you. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for doing that in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Hey, thank you again for joining us. We hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. And it doesn't have to end there. If you want to find last week's sermon, you can go to Facebook, YouTube, or you can listen to us on the audio podcast. You can let us know if you'd like to be further connected in a life group. But let me go ahead and pray as we close and say, God, thank you for being with us, Lord God. Thank you for helping us to carry your words, Lord God, and change our lives, Lord. Help us to carry your love to those around us. And we thank you for what you are doing. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and thank you for being a part. We hope to see you soon.